Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Christina Foley to the Hey Salespeople podcast. Welcome, Christina. Well, thank you so much for having me. Christina is the VP of Commercial Sales at FireEye, and she leads a number of different functions there in the mid-market, all the way from lead generation to new business, all the way through retention. And FireEye, if you're not familiar with them, is a leader in the cybersecurity space, and that's inclusive of immediate response to breaches via its Mandiant arm. Today, we're going to talk all about how the buying landscape is changing and what that means for salespeople and sales leadership. So with that framed, I'll go into my first question, which is, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? Extreme Ownership. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list. They also just wrote The Dichotomy of Leadership. It's a great book, and it's truly about how to, to be a leader at any time and any side, but really about how you're going to battle. And when you're going into war, how do you prepare yourself and your team, not just to persevere, but as a leader, how do you lead people in through times of success and hardship? So it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I would say check it out. It's about the Navy SEALs. And uh, it was That's written right. by Jocko Willenick, who has, I think, a very famous podcast. I definitely highly recommend that one as well. And there's one other really simple book that I just read. It's Making Every Second Count. It's really very, very simple. You could read it in probably a few hours. But for anyone, not just leaders, but for sales folks to help them really make sure they're maximizing their time and being organized, everything from basic note cards to how do you prioritize an hour in your day versus the full day for the week, the month. I read it just the other day. Someone gave it to me and said, you'll read it in two hours. And I sure did. And it was really good, super simple. I recommend it to a lot of folks. That one I have not read, so I'll definitely pick it up. The second question is to have you reflect a little bit on the first thing you ever remember selling. My first response is yes, it was at a yogurt store. The shop is now closed. It was at the yogurt stop and I was selling yogurts, I suppose, to very interested buyers. Really, I was just behind the counter. You know, I have to say sales was in my blood. My father has been in, in sales his whole life. So if I think back to the days when I was four and five and wanting to get a piece of candy, I am pretty sure I was constantly being as persuasive as possible with both my parents to get what I wanted. Was your dad instrumental in teaching you sales lessons in any way, shape, or form? Absolutely. Quite frankly, it was the reason why I got into sales. And he was not only, and not only still is a mentor of mine, but was a mentor. I followed in his footsteps, not right away. I, I was a recruiter at first, but then ended up in sales over at salesforce.com. He really helped shape my perspective on what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. And that was his big thing is run towards what you want. Don't run away from something you don't want and really helping me understand what that was and how I got there. Wow. That's amazing to have a parent in sales advising you who's not only giving you great tips, but is quotable. Well, I will say now he's retired, but um, still ask me what my forecast is. So um, it's, <laughs> it's truly in his blood. Well, you mentioned your first job out at salesforce.com. I think that's a perfect way to start the conversation sure. around how, how buying is changing. So, you know, when you started out at Salesforce in the early 2000s, what yeah. was the selling and buying process like back then? It was really simple. And if we look at the way people buy today versus what it was like at Salesforce, I mean, listen, there were not that many CRM tools. Salesforce was obviously in the heyday and, and doing quite well, but they were answering your calls. They were willing listeners. 
and willing participants in engaging in conversation to understand what's the value proposition in this case, why buy a CRM, why buy Salesforce? We had one tech tool, which was Salesforce, to log all of our information. We had one contact database, which was in Salesforce. And, you know, it was sort of this tried and true, make 100 calls, 10 people answer, one to three people will easily take a meeting and, you know, conversion rates were much higher. I feel like with the sort of change in the internet and access to information, it's different now. But at the time when I started at Salesforce, I felt like the selling motion, it was simple and there weren't a lot of complexities to tools and technologies that we were leveraging. Everything was in one single place, which was in Salesforce. It was quite different. Yeah. So it really is two things. It's the complexity that sellers have to deal with internally, but also the change in the receptiveness of buyers. And I guess we have been our own worst enemies in both of those respects, right? That as the very popular and helpful book came out, Predictable Revenue, that has transformed the way that selling has been done. And But it's also made buyers a bit more resistant to all this activity. Yeah. Access to information. Not only the buyer's access to information when they're looking at a services or goods to purchase, but it's also the access to information that sellers have. Some of the time I see some of my sellers, and this isn't just at FireEye, but people I know in the industry, they have so many tools that they need to use. They have access to so much information. They have so many potential plays they can offer from a selling motion. And oftentimes that information, there's so much to consume that it can actually slow us down. So some of the methodology as I work with my sales leaders in our current go-to-market 2019 plan and what we're doing is we've gone from more in 2018 to less is better in 2019, really getting focused with fewer tools, with fewer sales motions, and really understanding what we use as command of the message and really making sure every conversation is driven through using our sales methodology, command of the message. I know that's a third-party methodology. Can you elaborate a little bit on that without giving too much of the secret sauce away? Yeah, no problem. We actually hired a company, Force Management, in 2018, and they put all of our sales team through rigorous training around command of the message. And essentially, you know, there's a framework that you leverage and there's intensive training. We just put our lead gen team through that for a week in December. And then there's a 13-week fast start program after that. But essentially, it's really working with the customer in what we would say a partnership and being as less salesy as possible, really kind of minimizing that and focus on a partnership, but helping them understand, okay, I'm going to use FireEye as an example. Hey, with FireEye, here are the positive business outcomes that you'll get by using and purchasing FireEye. Here are the negative consequences if you don't use it. If you do leverage FireEye and acquire our product or services, not only these are the outcomes in a positive way that you'll get, but these are the things that you'll see change from a, a metrics perspective and will help you align to both short and long-term goals. And in those conversations through command of the message, we can help them understand where they can take risks and where they need to basically tap the brake a little bit. And it even helps us position the type of buying persona we're talking to. So, you know, how do we speak to a board of directors or a CEO versus potentially someone that's a, um, a technical engineer. So it's, it's really an interesting way to think about how you sell to and with your customer and using a very specific mindset to walk them through essentially how they get to their positive business outcomes and the consequences if they don't. I would assume that 
that's been a big transformation for you in the sense that most sellers that I encounter, right, when people are pitching me, even though they've been taught to value sell, they're still all feature selling or almost all feature selling. Has that been something you've had to wrestle with? And is that kind of why you brought force management in? That was probably one of our biggest struggles. And what we were seeing is that FireEye specifically, we're very technical, lots of products around how we secure your network, email, endpoint, et cetera, or what you're doing in an intense time if there's been a breach. And it's very easy as a seller to get into bits and bytes. And the reality is, and what Command of the Message helps everyone with, including me, is zoom out a little bit and understand the big picture. What are your goals? What are the outcomes you want to see? And not getting technical. If I look at the entire sales team within the commercial world at FireEye, those that are having the most success are the least technical now. We're helping people understand larger business problems that can lead back to discussions with the board that will ultimately help companies save money. And those are the conversations people want to have right now. We had a very, very difficult and intensive transition from really wanting to get technical because we're talking to technical buyers oftentimes and keeping that conversation directed at the outcomes. There's two things as I reflect on what you were saying that I think are, are so important. One is you were, you were talking about the fact that the sellers basically have to take the time to build these partnerships, deeper partnerships with people. And I had another conversation with a sales leader who was saying, one of the major changes that's happened as you go from transactional to enterprise selling is patience. Can't rush the deal. The buyer needs to trust that you're the right partner to help them solve those critical business issues. The other one is that moving from feature to value-based selling I think one key thing is just to keep tying back to what the business objective the prospect had stated was. I agree with you. I think you hit the nail on the head. And then really helping our sellers in particular be good storytellers. That's another thing that I think helps people feel like we're speaking to them and are, have empathy and understand their situation when we're talking about specific proof points where it's happened before, where we've worked with customers that look and act and feel similar to the prospect we're talking to. And we're helping them understand, listen, this was your before, this is what your after looks like. These are the goals that we're going to get to and really holding some accountability on a timeline perspective. But to your point, I mean, customers, what we're finding today is we can show them pain. We can help them understand if they don't purchase, let's say FireEye in this instance, we can show them all these things and what would happen if they didn't purchase FireEye, but it's on their time that they're going to decide to make the decision. We're just helping them feel empowered and have all the information in front of them to make the very best decision. And it's about being a partner. We've talked a bunch about how buying has changed. We talked a bit about how selling has changed at the individual contributor level. I also know that you've had, looks like very early in your career, got into management. Was your first management role back at Ironport Systems? It sure was, yep. Let's reflect a little bit, if you can, on how management has changed as the buyer experience has changed, as the tools and technologies have changed. How has your life changed? The one thing that, Jeremy, you and I talked about before this call is being able to make data-driven decisions. And as a leader, I would say that I am very much focused on making more data-driven decisions than ever because the access to information, in this case being positive, I can be a bit more analytical and look at a lot more historics to help make decisions around um, selling effectiveness or onboarding and training, whereas before that just didn't exist. So while I struggle sometimes with all the technology we're using and all the information we have, but in a lot of cases, that's very helpful because I'm going to say, for example, in this case, SalesLoft, 
we're able to look at sales effectiveness, our return on investment for outbound calls, inbound calls, our marketing qualified leads, conversion rates, and we can just be a lot more prescriptive in what we decide to do. So from a leadership perspective, I'm making way more data-driven decisions than ever before. So that's massive. I also think that, to be honest with you, there's a level of adaptability you know, the the market and the way people consume data and the way that we're selling to people can change in just a year. And so as sales leaders, I think we need to be active listeners more than ever before and be adaptive as quickly as possible using the data at our fingertips. So active listening and then being adaptive is important. And then obviously back to understanding the data and being very prescriptive about decisions we're making. Getting deeper into the data, one of the biggest data-centric challenges that sales leaders face is forecasting. What are your thoughts on forecasting and what tricks and tips do you have for people on how to improve at, at forecasting? I personally am constantly looking at ways that I can improve my team's forecasting ability. I mean, everyone always says it's an art and a science and I'm managing managers, but at the managers managing reps, it's an art and a science. Like get to know your individual reps and how they forecast and stay close to the biggest deals. And that's sort of a very tactical thing, but I think really, really important. But you know, the one thing that I've made a commitment on doing is being very consistent with my forecasting methodology for at least the fiscal year for FireEye. So in this case, you know, I was very specific with the team that we were gonna make some changes to forecasting, but I would be consistent and not make any changes th throughout the year that I would be consistent on the forecasting. So that was really important. I think that's easy to overcomplicate how people forecast. So my methodology is, has always been keep it simple. So I've always said that you're going to get three to four categories for the year, and you're going to forecast against those three to four categories. And I'm very clear with how you call a number in each one of those categories. So I define them very specifically. Like what the percentage is for in each category. Yeah. And just what it means. So for FireEye, for example, this year, we had something called closest to the pin. Commits, you're sort of conservative. I know I'm going to get to this number commit. Hey, you know, Bill Robbins, head of FireEye Sales, you can roll this number to the board, no problem. The CTP is where you're saying, hey, I think we're going to land here. Don't roll this to the board, but you could probably count on me for the number. We made that change at the beginning of the year. It's pretty simple. But I told my guys, listen, we'll run it through for the year. If it doesn't work, we can give that feedback. There's so many different ways that people change their forecasting categories and the way that they roll them up. And we use a tool that helps us have a little bit more predictability in the numbers we're calling, which also helps. It just reminds me of a conversation I had with a, another sales leader, Larry D'Angelo, who runs sales over at Log Me In now. He had this one kind of trick that he uses, which is there's a checkbox that gets refreshed every week. So the sales rep needs to go in there and either check it or not. And the checkbox is basically, did you ask, are we winning? If that's checked, yes, then the deal's in the forecast at whatever probability. If that's not checked, then it's not out of the forecast. A lot of reps, I think, are afraid to ask that question directly. And I think it's a super valuable thing to do. And if you have a champion and you have the trust built that is sufficient, that it's the kind of deal that you're likely to win, then you should be able to ask that question. And I know as a buyer, I will candidly tell people, it's down to you and, and whatever other vendor, and here's my evaluation criteria, and yeah. here's where you stand. Like, I think buyers are pretty transparent about that. 
I'm very sensitive to that. And I am like you where I'll tell people that same exact thing, because whether it's because I'm a sales leader and I see my sales team and I, I have some empathy for them, but I also think it just helps people. I'm not here to waste anyone's time. One of the things that I ask all of my sales leaders when we're on a forecasting call is, do you have a, access to the economic buyer? And I know it's a really, you know, you think everyone's going to say yes, but the second they say no, I'm like, we don't have a deal. This deal shouldn't even potentially be in the forecast. So I do have a set of questions that kind of to me gives checks and balances on the validity of an opportunity and whether or not it should be in the forecast, especially for deals over $100,000. If we don't have access to an economic buyer, the likelihood of that deal happening within a 30-day window is unlikely. I can't help but ask, what other probing questions do you have to assess the health of an op? Another question I ask is, have you talked about, do you have a reverse timeline and plan? And have you talked about a time and date where you're saying, this is why and when we need to get this done? Because if you're not talking about a timeline, and it doesn't have to be, hey, listen, on Tuesday at three, this needs to happen. But some specific sort of impending date that helps you stick to an answer, a resolution, it shows their level of commitment if they're engaging in that conversation. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of talking aimlessly about, objectives and plans on what you potentially might want to do. I just don't think there's a lot of foundation in the opportunity. So we talk about that. And then I also say, hey, listen, in our case, we are as much of a channel company as possible. I'd say we're 99% channel within the commercial business at FireEye. If a channel partner isn't fully engaged in the opportunity and getting ready to and have sent quotes and understand those discussions, the likelihood of, of that deal happening in 30 days is also probably not very likely. The mutual plan or reverse timeline, as you called it, I think is one of the fundamental misses, I think, that a lot of sales teams aren't executing on. Do you use any formal technology for that? There's not much out there, actually, or is it just something that people will do in a Google Sheet? Or how do you expect your reps to secure those mutual plans? So we actually have a set of fields in Salesforce when a deal gets to a certain stage and they want to put it in a forecast category that reaches a certain threshold, they have to have basically medic filled out. So medic is a sales methodology, sort of methodology, but it helps you really truly understand where a buyer's at, like a checklist to help you understand your knowledge and control of an opportunity. We use command of the message for our selling motion, but we leverage medic as the way that we sort of cross check the control of a deal. So medic being metrics, economic buyer, What's the decision process? What's the decision criteria? Do they have a real pain that you've identified? And do you have what we call a champion or an, you know, someone there that can really influence you within the company that you're selling to? And we ask that those fields are filled out, among a few other things that are checked to allow for a deal to be forecasted. I know force management is also big on adding a couple letters to medic and they'll often use med pick and the extra, yeah. there's an extra P and a an extra C and an extra P, I'm sorry. So the extra P is paper process, which although paper is a little ambiguous, it basically means, do you understand what their purchasing policy is? The extra C is for competition to understand where competition is in the account. You bring up a good point because I think sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh, there's no competition. The competition could be internal. The competition could be, we're not going to do anything. We really try to have those conversations around, you know, just because they're saying the competition you know, there's no one else involved doesn't mean you've won the deal. It's a great framework. I always like to wrap up by just asking folks to reflect on, you know, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice as a sales leader, when you were starting your career managing teams, what piece of advice would you have given yourself? 
The first one is listen more to your customers and listen more to your team. That's huge. The other one would be, I'm going to use a very personal experience, but I was coming into the role as a manager, filling a manager's position that was moving on to another role. And this guy, Jeff St. Clair, was amazing. One of the best leaders I've ever worked for. And I felt like I needed to come in and, and be him and do everything he did. And that just doesn't work. You know, there was no authenticity to the way I coached and the way I provided guidance because I was trying to be someone else. So if I was talking to myself 20 years ago, I would have said, lead with your own authenticity. And that really started to come out after I had, you know, a good look in the mirror and said, this isn't working. I can't be Jeff St. Clair. I would say those two things are the most important. And then I wouldn't say give, you know, I felt like I led humbly as a leader, but as much as you can say what I've adapted to and what I say to my team at the beginning of every year and as frequently as possible is I work for you, you don't work for me. And as your leader, I am responsible to make sure you're successful. And so that ownership and responsibility rests with me. And I take that to heart. Yeah, I guess it leads me to one final book, which speaks very much to that last point, Radical Candor by Kim Scott Malone. Challenge directly and care deeply, right? Uh, you need to be able to do those two things to be successful as a leader in sales and elsewhere. Yeah, well said. I would agree. <laughs> yep. Well, again, Christina, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.